From We First and Goal 17 Media, welcome to Lead with We. I'm Simon Mannering, and each week I talk with purposeful business and thought leaders about the revolutionary mindsets and methods you can use to build your bottom line and a better future for all of us. Today, my guest is Michelle Dukeris, the CEO of Anheuser-Busch InBev, a global beer and beverage company who is pioneering and activating a new purpose, which is dream big to create a future with more cheers. Michelle, welcome to Lead with We. Hi, Simon. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. Very, very well. And as an Australian, I have to say, I am thrilled to talk to a, you know, the CEO of a company that has led so many good times amongst me and my friends. So thank you. It's a pleasure to meet you. Pleasure meeting you and happy to know about the good times. This is the business that we are in. Ab- absolutely. And, and, you know, I realize that you've been at a company for 25 years, working across all the different markets, Latin America, North America, and so on. Could you share a little bit of, you know, about that journey for you and maybe a couple of insights of what it's like to build a global enterprise across so many markets with such a wide portfolio of brands? When you look back at these 25 years, what sort of insights would you share? So first, I think that uh, what attracted me to the company since the, the very early beginning was one, uh, and I cannot deny that, the fact that it was beer. And beer is social, beer is very inclusive. Beer has these deep connections with local communities, local people. And as much as you and everybody else, you can always remember a situation, an occasion with friends, family, that you were having a good time and beer was always part of this conversation. So the, the first big thing was uh, being attracted by this very unique business that was beer. And after joining the company, then I, I got to learn some other things about the culture, the meritocracy, the drive for dreaming big. We always talk that the, the very foundational part of our culture is this idea of dreaming big. And despite of the fact that people talk a lot about this idea of dreaming big, it's not something that people really practice all the time. How you remove constraints out of the environment in which you are, part of when you are defining targets, goals, objectives to your organization, and you first think about what is the maximum that we can achieve, the best of all dreams that we can have, and later you really go through the process of defining what is feasible, what the resources are, but that was very unique. The idea that you could really think uh, without constraints and what would be the best of all impacts that you could cause being on the company goals, on the environment, on the communities where we operate our business. And this is part of the history, part of the very foundation uh, of our culture and who we are as a company. You know, you've got this um, ambition for everyone in the company to dream big, but that then supports the meritocracy because you're allowed to dream big, you can actually accelerate your own growth inside the company. So I think there's a lot of big organizations out there that are risk averse for a number of reasons, But if I understand you correctly, by giving people permission to dream big, 
you can actually accelerate their growth, make them happier, get more productivity out them, and then the company will do better as a result. Would you say that's fair? It's fair. And it's, it's such an incredible thing because my job is really about traveling, talking to people, giving strategic direction, but allowing them to perform the tasks that they need to perform. And it's not like seldom that I'm traveling through Mexico or Colombia or the US or China and someone operating one of our lines. So it's not the president of a country or a director or a vice president, is a line operator. When we talk to them and ask them how things are going, the first thing that they say is, my dream for my line is to get to this productivity. Or a sales rep is, my dream for my region is to have our products in 100% of the points of sales. So it's really embedded into the culture of the company. As I told you, it's part of the fabric of who we are, uh, the idea of dreaming big. And just if you allow me on the, on the cheers yeah. part, uh, a quick story. We have a board member that is uh, an incredible person. And when we presented our new purpose, we dream big to create a future with more cheers. She was telling us that this is so incredible. And one of the reasons why she likes the company is that because when she was young and she was working, traveling a lot abroad, she was always trying to learn how to say cheers in the language of the specific countries that she was sure. traveling to, because she could not learn all the languages. But if she could say cheers, she always felt this very special connection with people. Yeah. And when we think about our purpose, cheers for us is much more than only the moment when people are drinking together and celebrating. Cheers has to do with inclusivity. Cheers has to do with prosperity. Cheers has to do with sustainability, but has to do with this amazing moment where people get together to celebrate. And that's why I believe that works very well for us because it's close to the category and it's close to our everyday life. In a future with more cheers is something that we should all aim for, right? Exactly. I mean, there's that, all that nuance to the word cheers and it is that immediate moment when you're connecting, but it's also reasons to celebrate and optimism and positivity and all those things you point to. You know, it's interesting. Sometimes people misunderstand the whole purpose around being a purposeful brand. They think it's doing something new. We need to do something new, but rather it is actually just unearthing what's always been true of the company. As you say, over your journey over the last 25 years, everyone's been always been encouraged to dream big. But help us understand, especially when you've got a large global industry-leading enterprise like yours, why now? What made you think, okay, great, we want to codify this purpose. We want a new visual identity to bring it to life, and we really want to lead with it. What was the thinking behind that? Yeah, this is a very interesting question. We, we had a purpose for many, many years in the company uh, that served us very well to to the moment that we are now. Uh, but at one point, when we got started, that purpose was somehow different and was like innovative for companies to talk about purpose. But throughout the years, there were always 
a need, there, there was a need to explain too much. And there were always conversations about, we need to find something that defines us better and that's closer to who we are as an organization and people. And now because of the change in the CEO, because the COVID, because of this moment that we are moving into now as an organization, we were looking for this purpose always. We are always having discussions in how to renew it, rethink a little bit differently. But there was this culmination of events and a very special group of people working together was like a, a big group of people working with me in defining this from inside the company and outside the company, provocations from people like Simon Sinek, uh, our colleagues and partners at Profit and the team inside ADI. We have defined that we would start from the point of understanding who we are, as you said, as an organization and what is really unique in our culture. And that was the idea of dreaming big. Mm -hmm. But we would like to connect this with what is the real role that our product and our category have across the society. And this idea of the cheers as a moment of celebration and our ability by dreaming big, fostering and creating this future with more cheers came like very naturally and very strongly across everybody. And there is this, uh, to me, it's the, it's the proof of concept that without explaining all the details, showing research, uh, exposing people to the findings when we tested these with consumers and stakeholders, when you say it, people have a smile in their face. Sure. It's a very natural reaction. Say, yeah, sure. Doing uh, the future with more cheers, I need to agree with that. With that in mind, how did you then roll out the purpose? Because, you know, when you've got over 500 brands, you've got all the different markets, all the regional specificity, you've got often the budgets are controlled out in the markets. How do you share that enterprise or company purpose with the brands in a way where they embrace it and they see it empowering to them? Yeah, that's a very good question as well. I mean, in a nutshell, what we have done was first, creating the purpose and validating across different stakeholders, uh, really testing the potential and the influence that that could have uh, in what we do and how people perceive what we do. Then we engaged our board as a, an advisory uh, group to really understand, question, bring topics and, and, and points for us to to reflect upon. And then we presented this uh, first to the organization internally to get people engaged and thinking about that. And we brought several different challenges for them. Uh, challenges to execute locally in each and every market. Challenges to integrate in the local brands and companies that we have across the globe. And we are still in the launching period where we see several manifestations. We started first with a BDEV as a global entity, and now this is being cascading for each and every of the entities that we have, from Hauser Bush in the US, to OneBev in Brazil, to Grupo Modelo in Mexico, 
And of course, as this now gets embedded into the organization, you start seeing brands finding themselves within the umbrella. Like, so our people and our team that lead Michele Boulter, for example, they've been always talking about this idea that all the efforts that you make are only worth if you can enjoy it. And this is the, the really foundation of what the brand Michele Boutre stands for. And then now people say it's only worth for the cheers, right? So all the efforts that you do, all this competition with your daily life, being professional, being athlete, being part of the society, it needs to have that moment in which you can celebrate and enjoy life. So our brands are also now starting to interact with the, the purpose. Uh, and you are right when you say that that is the complexities of the matrix, of the budgets, and who controls what. That's why a powerful idea is the best that you can have because then mobilizes everybody to be part of the idea. And then the discussions around budgets, whether I like or dislike, they become secondary and people really engage with this. And I'm very happy to see how much our teams and our people have been engaging with that. And we have big ambitions. We want to take this beyond the walls of the company. We really want to have an impact with that and having more people embracing this purpose together with us because the more we impact, the more we leverage uh, all the reach that ABI has as a company, the bigger the impact will be. And this is what we want. Absolutely. And it's, it's such a powerful idea you're sharing, which is that Cheers almost becomes the currency within and beyond the walls of the company. You're literally looking at everything you do through that lens. And I think a lot of times when people look at, especially in COVID times and all the challenges with the climate crisis and so on, people are more risk averse. But what you're saying is a powerful idea like this can help people understand what to do and what not to do, just as importantly, and to really help them navigate what can be a, a really, really difficult time. So, you know, it may sound counterintuitive to some of our listeners, but what I'm hearing is that when you have a big, simple, universally understood idea, that can help you navigate a challenging time, you know, even more effectively. Would you say that's fair? I think it's fair. And the idea of being averse to risk uh, is something that we all discuss every day. And in a way, because we all have bias, right? And bias is not necessarily always bad because bias, they help you to be alert, alive, to avoid mistakes when you have the intuition and the learnings from the past. I think that what makes a ton of difference in our culture is that we don't want to risk things just for the sake of risking things. But the biggest risk that you can have in an organization is not having ideas and not trying new things. So I think that this creates the environment where we can have freedom to have ideas. We can expose our ideas without being afraid of any overreaction on the other side. And of course, you need to test things. You need to build your case and do all the work that needs to be done to avoid damage while taking risks is something to be celebrated because the world needs innovation, companies need innovation, and companies need to disrupt themselves 
so they keep the relevance in today's world. So I think you are right on the, on the observation you just made. Yeah, there's nothing, there's nothing more dangerous than trying to stay safe today. I think you need to self-disrupt as you move forward. And to that point, I mean, you launched almost you know, months after you took over the CEO role, the 10-year strategic plan. So how does the new purpose work and the strategic plan come together? And why was it so important to lay out that 10-year roadmap so early? In a way or another, when you think organizations and the idea of planning for one year and three years uh, is no longer a competitive advantage. Hmm. The example I give to people is, as I walk around my office, there is a bakery that I like to go there sometimes to unwind and drink a coffee or eat a muffin. Yep. So I give my 10 minutes time. Of peace, tranquility. Yeah. Only, only by myself. And it's often when you are chatting with the owner that he will talk to you about new items in the menu. Or he will talk about this new equipment that he bought to the bakery. And he's doing a one-year plan. He's very clear about his investments, the launch that he's bringing, the investments that he's making and what he expects to do in the one year. So any organization that does a one-year plan should not be bragging about being strategic and different. If you think about three-year horizon and plan, any organization as well that has a board will find in the bylaws of the company that the board should approve the three-year plan, the strategic plan whatsoever. Yeah. And when I move it, which was the real beginning of this idea of 10-year plan to me, when I moved to Asia and I was working in China, China is the size of a continent and is very complex, very different, especially for foreigners. And I always thought that this idea of planning for one year and three years in China was good tactically, but very weak operationally, uh, right. strategically, because people there, they really plan for long term. Right. And in other countries that are more developed, you can have the luxury of updating your three year plans time to time because things will not change too much. And then I read a book uh, that had like projections for 2030 of the Chinese population mm -hmm. and how affluent this population would be and what would happen with the markets. That was early 2010. And then I decided to come up with this crazy idea of creating a 10-year plan. And the learnings on that was that when you do short-term, one-year, two-year plans, they are very good for operational things like defining your budget, defining your next year capacity, but they are not really good to capture early trends where consumers are moving in one direction or technology is being prepared to do something different. Right. This type of massive shifts, you can only quantify and understand the impact on your business if you stretch the lenses beyond three years and you go right. to 10 years. And as we got started in doing these 10-year plans, we learned that this became like a huge competitive advantage for us as a company. Because, for example, as beer company, we went very early on 
for e-commerce. When majority of people, they were saying that in e-commerce, you would only transaction items that are very light because the cost of shipping goods was going to be too expensive. So no heavy items would be shipped in e-commerce. But we saw that consumers were migrating, migrating fast, and they would be majority buying and picking up goods and defining things through e-commerce. So we got started in e-commerce in 2011, when a lot of people were trying to build e-commerce during the pandemic in 2021. Uh, we decided to go super premium in beer based on the trends that we could observe in 2012. And beer as a category is still today the least developed in terms of premiumization, even though we've been working on that for the last 10 years. But we yeah. only do these massive investments in global brands and premium propositions if we could really see the impact, not of one year, three years, but the impact of 10 years. That, that Think about, just to give one more example, yeah. we used to have 65 breweries in China. Today, we have less than 30. When we decided to renovate our footprint in China, we built all our breweries in China to be low carbon emission, low water consumption. Just tell me in 2010, 11, who was talking about targets for carbon zero, uh, especially in production facilities in India, China, or in Brazil and Mexico. So those things are only possible when you think long-term. I think it's such a powerful idea to share with people because especially today when you have so much urgency and multiple crises, our horizon line almost lowers and we're looking at days, months, the year in advance, but that longer horizon line of 10 years, as you say, is really where you capture the innovation opportunity, where you can see the trends early enough to prepare for them to capture that opportunity as the market rises to meet you. So I think we would all learn by, especially if we're being sort of catalyzed by a really meaningful purpose, to take that longer horizon line and then leverage innovation to execute against that purpose. And, you know, what you were sharing made me think of, you know, when you look 10 years down the track, obviously you see the compounding environmental challenges we face, the climate crisis, ocean acidification, loss of biodiversity, and also the, the rising scrutiny from consumers, employees, investors, the rise of ESG funds and so on. So can you help me understand the connective tissue between your purpose, the, the business and strategic plan, and these very important and significant sort of ESG goals that you've announced as well. How do they work together? We went back to review the category and we landed in this idea of our category is very inclusive. So it's for men, women, rich, poor, developed, developing worlds. And we have a role to play there because we really want beer to be very accessible for people right. and make sure that everyone can enjoy and celebrate. Beer is very natural, so all this debate today about climate change and sustainability for us is a way of living for decades and centuries. Just think that without water, there is no beer. Without barley, there is no beer. So if the climate changes too much that you cannot grow your crops, we will not have beer. So it's very important for us that we are part of this conversation and part of the solution. And uh, at the end, beer is very local as well. 
So we can feel the changes in the climate, the change on the economies in each and every market where we have our businesses close to these communities. And we know when the community is thriving because then our business is always thriving. And we know when the community is suffering because our business also suffers together with the local economies. Right. And we uh, have been working very hard on that. We think that the biggest role that we can play is really in the S part with economic empowerment and entrepreneurship while we need to do our part and be active in supporting the change for all other aspects of the ESG agenda. And we've been working, we have, for example, today, breweries in China, breweries in Brazil that have already a negative carbon footprint. So we are no longer uh, contributing negatively, but positively in the local communities. We've been making investments to transform more and more of our footprint, both the supply and the logistics footprint in a green footprint. Mm -hmm. And this is not something that is separate from the business strategy. So this is embedded in everything that we do, because at the end of the day, it needs to be good to the business. So it becomes self-fulfilling in terms of investments and focus from the organization. No, it's such a, you know, it's essential. It's absolutely essential because it is, it's the lifeblood of your business, your commitment to the land, regenerative practices, waste management, reduction in carbon emissions. It all shapes the product you literally take to market at a time when expectations from everybody else are getting higher and higher. Are there any industry-wide challenges that you're wrestling with? Recycling, the bottles themselves, like every industry has a challenge. Are there any sort of big solutions that you're looking for innovation to answer? So, Simon, I, I really think that the, the issues that we face, not only as an industry, but uh, overall population, countries on the, on the sustainability front, they are issues that nobody, no organization, no company, no government will be able to solve alone. Right. So, the one big issue that I see that's becoming more clear to everybody is this idea of cooperation, collaboration, and partnership, public, private, in order to deliver the solutions. So no one will be able to solve things uh, isolated. We need everybody collaborating. The second thing that I see, just because of the position that I have today that allows me to see what is being done in Argentina, in UK, in Mexico, in Brazil, in the US, in China, is that governments that are updating and evolving legislation mm -hmm. and creating alternatives that are different country by country, but that in a, in a way they give like long-term direction to the players and they provide incentives to the players to act, uh, they are achieving more success. And the legislation and incentives, they, they can come in very different shapes and forms. They can come in investing in the workforce locally to allow people to have 
the technology and the right people to run new facilities. They can come in incentives that allow for specific policies for industries to make the investments to renovate uh, their industrial manufacturer assets uh, and have the time and the business case to make it. In some cases, by creating technological areas where the technological challenges that we have are more uh, uh, easy to address with local uh, supports and incentives. So I think that collaboration, legislation, and the last big milestone that we need to cross is really technology. Because today there is a lot of uh, willingness to tackle all the challenges, but in some cases either you don't have the technology or just the technology is too expensive to scale. Sure. So I think that the partnership, public and private, with the right incentives, will not only foster the technology development, but also help us to get to the scale fast, that will help to reduce the costs and the barriers, and therefore everybody will be able to uh, redeploy this technology that will be available. So those are my three nuggets on that. No, they're very, they're very powerful um, examples, and I want to speak to three different categories of collaboration, because as you said, you've got cross-sector collaboration, public-private partnerships, but there are also industry-wide collaborations or collaborations inside your own company. And something that comes to mind is the 100 plus accelerator, where the industry is coming together to provide solutions to environmental and social crises. What role does a company play in that? And, and what is the 100 plus accelerator? Uh, this is a, an incredible initiative that our sustainability uh, area put in place, which is, as I said before, we have very clear goals and what is the role that we play in the ESG sustainability agenda. So we want to address watershed protection because we want our communities to have access to water. We want to make sure that 100% of our products, they can be made with recyclable packaging. We want to have renewable energy and we want to have our farmers economically and digitally empowered. So with these four pillars in mind, we invited uh, small enterprises, startups to join us on what we call the 100 plus accelerator, bringing disruptive, innovative technology to solve these problems. So thousands of small enterprises, they present their ideas to us. We select what would be the 100 most relevant or with the most chances to succeed. Mm -hmm. And then we provide them with an environment where they can bring their ideas to feasibility by using our own assets. So if someone has an idea that saves water, we help them with all the infrastructure to bring the idea to life and we pilot for them in one of our breweries or one of our distribution centers. So by the end of the period that they are incubating with us, they could have the idea, the technical support, the real life implementation of their idea 
And if this proves to work, then they will have a very good example to start raising funds and commercialize their ideas. In this process, we've had several other CPGs joining us, big companies such as Coke, uh, Unilever, I think, uh, getting together with us within the 100 plus accelerator because they buy into the same agenda and they want to offer their own assets as a training place, training ground for these ideas to be tested and to thrive. So we all together can get the technology that we need, we can get the feasibility of these ideas and perhaps uh, a way of really commercialize and start implementing these ideas into our own ecosystem. And then for these entrepreneurs, they get this incredible support of the, the hub, right? The, the 100 plus accelerator. And they have a place where they can be coached and they can bring their ideas to life. And then based on that, they will be able to succeed much more than if they were doing or trying to do all of that standalone or only by themselves. You know, I think it's a great cause for optimism because many people today, they look around the world, they look at the headlines and they feel disheartened. They feel that this is a negative time. But what you're saying is that every one of these challenges, whether it's managing waste or whether it's access to water, they're all marketplace opportunities in disguise. They're, they're opportunities for companies to come along and say, here's a solution and who's the right partner, such as your company, to take them to scale. I know you're working with, for example, Evergreen, and you're using the brewing greens they use to actually make a plant-based protein. Can you give us a little bit more explanation about that and just to see how something like that, how one of these solutions can come to life? Yeah, this is to me uh, an incredible example uh, of how many opportunities we all have and how much technology can bring more out of what we already have in hands today. So there is this saying that I love that says that need is the birthplace of creativity. And Evergrande to me is an example of that. Uh, and in a nutshell, if I can tell you this story is like this. In order to produce beer, you need barley. We as a company, we've been brewing beer for more than 600 years. We all know that someone is brewing beer for more than 10,000 years, right? So that is uh, facts that suggest that people are brewing and drinking beer uh, thousands of years ago. And we've been using barley in our brewing process uh, with the only purpose of allowing the yeast that ferments the barley to produce the beer that we later treat and then pack to sell. And this grain, barley, is an amazing grain that has somehow 10 to 15% protein, 70 plus percent fiber, and then has the starch, the carbohydrate that the yeast eats when he's producing the beer. After the yeast does his job, we would get all these grains and then redirect them to other uh, purposes and the most common purpose is animal feed because it's a very rich grain right so you can do bread with barley you can do soup with barley you can do beer with barley right uh, when you take the carbohydrates still a lot there in this grain 
Through technology in one of these startups, we learned that we could apply a process, one more step process, and we would do the separation from the fiber and the protein out of the remaining part of the grain. And in doing so, we learned that first, the yeast does a great job because the yeast goes there and takes 100% of the starch out of the grain. When the grain then comes out of the brewing process, this grain has 35% protein. What makes the barley grain after brewing one of the richest grains in terms of protein for vegetable protein transformation. And the protein that you can extract from the barley after this process is a very clean, very high quality protein because all the tough job of doing the separation of the starch was already done perfectly by the yeast. And because we don't need to seed the field, harvest the grain, do the transportation of this grain to a facility, the savings in the carbon footprint are unbelievable as compared as any other vegetable protein for the protein that we extract out of barley. And now we are doing this at scale. We just invested in two massive facilities, one in Jupil in Belgium and one in St. Louis here in Missouri. Uh, and we are now producing tons of vegetable protein. And after 600 years, just redeploying these grains with very low value added, now we're going to be able to supply big companies to use both the fibers and the protein to produce real food for humans and helping a little bit in saving carbon footprint in the process, but also being a solution for this huge food crisis that we all know that is coming up in the next 10 to 20 years. And any advice, you know, on the strength of your 25 years inside the company, but also through the lens of arguably the most challenging period to lead in the last two centuries, when you think of the scale of the climate crisis, social inequities, you know, the expectations of the investor class and employees and consumers, any advice to either entrepreneurs or high growth companies, leaders of large corporations um, that you'd give them based on all the experience you've had? Oh, I would love to, to be able to give advice to people, but I, I think that uh, the realities are very different. Everyone faces different challenges. From my standpoint, it's, it's very important that you continue to be the moment. So you need to keep learning. You need to keep alert for the very fast changing world. And you need to make sure that your organization, being a private, public, uh, non-profit organization, that you are part of the society that is evolving each and every day and moving very fast. So I think that there is no longer space for that idea that you build your walls and you hide behind the walls with your single purpose or your uh, organization mission. Today, you need to be part of the world and you cannot hide behind the walls. So that's why when we say that we dream big to create a future with more cheers, is more cheers for everyone, not only for ABA. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you so much for the insights today and also for setting a really, really powerful and purpose-led example 
for the industry and you know beyond and really appreciate everything you shared with us today thank you simon thank you for having me thank you for giving the opportunity to be in dev and to a future with more cheers thanks for joining us for another episode of lead with we our show is produced by goal 17 media and you can always find more information about our guests in the show notes of each episode Make sure you subscribe to Lead With We on Apple, Google, or Spotify, and do share it with your friends and colleagues. You can also watch our episodes on YouTube at We First TV. And if you're looking to go even deeper into the world of purposeful business, check out my new book, Lead With We, which is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Google Books. See you again soon, and until then, let's all Lead With We.